Father, we want to thank you for your goodness, Lord. Well, thank you for your son. Thank you, Lord, that you have caused us to love him, fall in love with him. And so even as we have come today, Lord, to hear more about him, his glories, we pray that you would thrill our hearts, Lord. Each time we hear more about our beloved, we are uh, excited, we are energized, we are um, joyful that he is the one who we'll spend eternity with. So we thank you again. Thank you for this evening and for all that you mean to us. We thank you. We love you, Lord, in Jesus Christ, the Lord's name. Amen. Amen. All right. So um, this will be the uh, second and the last part of uh, why we believe in resurrection. We'll do a quick review. I guess we uh, looked at... um, we said we look at it in three parts, the internal evidence, the uh, legal historical evidence, and, uh, and then we end with a liar, lunatic, or the Lord. Uh, so we'll look at the second and the third today. The third is just um, conclusion, so it's not going to take too much of a time. But as we want to do that, we want to quickly do a review. And um, so I'm not sure what you remember about what we did, those of us who were here last time. So if you look at the credibility of the authors, the credibility of the authors, we said we look at the internal evidence, why we believe, what we can believe about the resurrection internally, like what the Bible says. We, we will cross-check that, okay? So we looked at that, and we said credibility of the authors. Do you remember anything about it? Anyone? Credibility of the authors. Why is credibility of the authors important? You got some clues there. Anything you remember at all? Luke was an example that we looked at and we saw what's a verse where he says that he was very diligent in, uh, in writing the account. Luke 1.3, all right? And uh, did you know that Luke, when he writes the book of Acts, there are 19 transcripts of various sermons or parts of it. Okay, and he was very systematic in collecting it. So he's very intentional. His integrity uh, comes, out, comes out in, you know, when you go through his, uh, the, the two books. Then we also looked at Paul. We looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We saw the apostolic creed that he uh, was teaching was something that he himself received. And not just that, what he received, but he cross-checked with the apostles, with James and with... Um, uh, with Peter himself, all right? So it was passing on of that truth we, which he continues to give, and we see that uh, coming up again and again. And then, then we looked at the credibility of the disciples. What's one thing about the disciples that comes to your mind, about the credibility? Anything? Anything about the disciples? Like, what about the disciples spoke to you as confirming that they were telling the truth. Say it again. They were eyewitnesses, right? And uh, so they spoke what they saw. They kept saying that again and again. And also, those who were cowards, they became what? They became courageous. How many of them uh, were martyred for the truth out of the 12? Do you remember the numbers? 11 out of the 12 were willing to die for their conviction. And if it was just a lie they made up, one of them would have squealed, you know, at, uh, because they, they didn't die a natural death. But the fact that all, all 12 were willing to die for the truth shows their conviction. And uh, if it's a hypocrisy, that would be difficult to sustain. Uh, because Acts 5, what happened in Acts 5? Remember Acts 5? What happened in Acts 5? Ananias and Sapphira. What's the story? They died. Why? Because they lied to God, lied to the Holy Spirit. And Peter is saying that. And if Peter himself is lying about the Holy Ghost or about God, then you know the cred- credibility of what he is saying is completely lost. They were so careful, they were so particular about uh, truth and about about uh, you know the fact that they what they say is true that when others uh, 
didn't, um, you know, when they intentionally lied, they actually paid a heavy price, all right? The hearsay rule, <clears throat> what about the hearsay rule? What do you remember about the hearsay rule? What's, what, what does hearsay mean? What's hearsay? What's hearsay? Rumors, right? Somebody said, somebody said, and so you say, okay, so that's a hearsay. But we said that here, this is not hearsay, this is the disciples who saw it. But where did they begin preaching? Jerusalem. Exactly the same city, same place where the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. If they're going to be talking about resurrection, if they're making a story up, they should rather be going to Galilee because that's where he had his ministry. Right? He would have had more sympathizers in Galilee, but the fact that he was able to you know, talk about resurrection and each of those, thank you so much, each of those uh, uh, sermons that we will see focuses on the resurrection. What, what's First Corinthians 15.3? Somebody wants to read that if you don't know it by heart. It's important that we recognize that that is where our premise is. And four two, according to the scriptures, all right? And then as you go down that verse, it says, your faith is in vain if Christ be not raised. Uh, Paul talks about it. And then the last one is the cross-examination uh, principle. We saw the uh, conversion of hostile witnesses. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, uh, Saul, who was actually persecuting the Christians, they get saved and they become great witnesses, right? And, and the fact we also saw that in the first century um, tradition, women's witness would not hold up in court. So if you're making up a case to prove resurrection, you would not want to use a woman's witness because that would be... Uh, as we saw in editorial suicide. I mean, nobody's going to buy it. But the truth be said, and truth was that, and God is gracious in the fact that in that time and, and culture, the first of people who would see and know about the resurrection of Jesus Christ are the women. And so uh, it, it speaks volumes about our faith that God has uh, called us to. All right? Um, <clears throat> we also looked at this, but we won't um, go too much into it, but the fact of uh, it was a theme of every sermon. They were willing to be imprisoned for it. They were frequently uh, mocked, and they did not fudge the Scripture. They set the Scripture as is. So one of the things that really you need to remember is that, you know, if people say your Scriptures are corrupted, if it was to be corrupted, most of, the, most of these hard sayings, uh, most of what you might think, we might think, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the discrepancies, if you would, in some, uh, you know, the way the story has been said, that could have been corrected. You know, how easy it would have been to correct those. And the fact that they were not tampered with goes um, uh, to speak about the scriptures, all right? So we want to look at legal historical evidence, the second part of what we have today, all right? And so um, one of the things that we, want to, we always hear people say is uh, prove it by science, right? Science. Can science prove it? I guess we want to look at that today. We want to see what is it about science that, uh, you, you know, what, how, do, how does science and the Bible come together? Okay. And um, <clears throat> so I, I, I think uh, let's do it. I mean, let's just sit in the same groups where we are, just turn around and you know, these four here and you, you there, you know. Um, small groups here, small group there. The question is, can science prove everything? Do I have a slide for that? Yeah. Can scientific methods be used to prove everything we believe? If so, list example. If not, list examples. Right? So this group here, uh, that group there, this group here, that group there, that group there, and <laughs> that group there, or Melvin's there. All right. So can scientific methods, what do you think? I mean, I, we haven't started, but I just want, want your initial thoughts. Can science prove everything? Yes or no? If yes, give an example. If no, give an example. 
All right, so let's come back. Who wants to take a shot at it? Yeah? Answer is no, okay? I can't hear you, sorry. Creation and Big Bang, okay? Science cannot prove why. Why, 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 why is it that Christ, oh, sorry, science cannot prove creation or Big Bang? It's not repeatable. Okay, I'll take that. Science can only prove what's repeatable, all right? I'll take that. We'll talk about it. Don't worry, okay? We'll, we'll, we'll get that, but this is what you've got. All right, you got? I think you should define what science is before you talk about scientific method, because then it would be a wrong, uh, because even philosophy is a science. It's a systematic. Okay, all right, yeah, okay. I'll take that. So, uh, do you want to take a shot at it? I agree with that, right? So uh, that's a good cl- uh, thing that, clear, that was clear, I guess, because philosophy could also be seen as a science. Science is a study, but this, again... So when we talk about science and what can be tested as science, at this point, I wanted to, wanted to dig deep into what you know about science. So let, let's talk about it. What, what, what do you think? Go ahead. Virgin, why? The question is why. Okay. So it happened once. It, it, we don't know what will happen. Okay, it's not repeatable or it's not observable. Okay, all right. What else? What are the other reasons? Oh, that's a good one. See that? See, science can only explain what's natural, what falls under the rule. Right, but if it's a miracle, if it's something outside supernatural, then science doesn't have an explanation. See, okay, all right. What else? Sorry, sorry. Laws and principles. Science is defined by laws and principles. All right. Evolution of man. You cannot disprove or cannot prove. All right. All right. Okay. So. So really, what science or scientific method is the empirical, as that's the word, I guess, which will differentiate from the various branches of science? When we say prove it by science, they say, can, you, can we observe it? Can we repeat it? Uh, one of the questions, did you know ivory soap floats? If you put that, put that in water, that's the, that's the uh, marketing uh, gimmick of the ivory soap. But do you know it floats? You didn't know that ivory soap floats. But how can you prove that ivory soap floats? <laughs> test it, right? You can test it. Each time you put it in water, it's going gonna, it's gonna to float. And so what you've done is by repetition, by observation, by experimentation, you can show that ivory soap can float, right? Any other examples where you can do it so that you can, you can test... Um, Test the truth of it. Say it again. Paper catching fire. fire. All right, yeah, that's good. Flammable, flammability or whatever it is. But what about, you know, we we spoke about, uh, did you say the virgin birth and the creation or whatever. What about historical events? How do you know George Washington lived? Can you prove it scientifically? Why not? Oh, yeah, so now we're getting into a problem because science is not able to prove to us that George Washington uh, lived or not. You have to start looking at other documents, all right? So I want us to... Um, so it's a DNA testing, okay? But we, we should not know, I guess, if it is George Washington or not unless we have something to compare it by, all right? Okay, so... 
Ian Hutchison, who is a MIT professor of nuclear science, I won't read the whole thing. I've got a good article here, but I'll just pick certain things about it uh, from the article, sorry, so that we get an idea, right? Science cannot and does not prove, disprove resurrection. Natural science describes the normal reproducible working of the world of nature. We spoke about that. Science is only reproducing what is in the world of nature. Miracles like resurrection are inherently abnormal. It does not take modern science to tell us that humans don't rise from the dead. People knew that perfectly well in the first century, just as they knew that the blind from birth don't, as adults, regain the sight. I didn't read that correctly, but what it says is if you're born blind, you don't regain your sight when you become an adult, all right? <clears throat> or water does not instantly turn into wine. Uh, science cannot logically rule out miracles in or out of consideration. It can be a helpful tool for investigating contemporary miracle, miraculous claims. It must reveal self-deception, trickery, or misperception. Let me explain that. I know that's big. It's uh, a scientist, a nuclear scientist who said that. So what he is saying is this. There are certain things that you cannot use the rule of science or, or the, uh, the laws of science to prove or to disprove. But you can actually take the narrative and see if there was an intentional uh, fudging, if there, is an, if there is a lie, if there is something that has been said wrong, and then compare and say this narrative is wrong because it does not hold up with science. Does that make sense? Um, so if the example that he gave here is, um, if I can find that example, he said about, uh, he said if someone is seen levitating with a carpet, flying carpet in the living room, all right, and if through investigation, you recognize that there is actually a magnet at the bottom of the floor that's causing that, then you have a scientific explanation and you can disprove levitation, right? So you have the narrative. If anything, through science, we can disprove the narrative, then we can disprove the whole, uh, you know, the, the document, okay? So if that were the case... Let me, um, what, I, what I did here, we won't have time probably to go through the whole thing. What I did is I have about nine lists of just the crucifixion scene and some of the things that were said at that time and how when we take science and compare it, we have an explanation for the narrative. All right, so there is nothing about the narrative which is supernatural in that sense because Christ experienced that physically, and we know that. That's the truth, because if, if, if he just, on the cross, if he just, if he just uh, acted like he suffered or if he was just uh, divinely, you know, really having a, if he didn't really suffer, let's say, if he didn't really suffer, then our belief that he suffered on the cross is affected. So he has to suffer. He, it, it was a physical suffering along with the spiritual and all of that. It was a physical suffering. So if it was a physical suffering, the explanation of the physical suffering must have a scientific uh, explanation. Make sense? You're not making sense. Right, so... So let's say uh, if let's say we say, "Oh, my shoulder is hurting." Right? It's a physical pain. When I go to the doctor, and he will have an explanation for me, he will not say, "Oh, I cannot explain it." So it's divine. You know, the pain is divine, or whatever. A physical pain must have a scientific explanation. Let's go through it, and we'll get. We'll get that clear, right? So Luke twenty-two forty-four, 44, he, he speaks about the great drops of blood falling down to the ground as sweat, right? And so probably earlier time, people have thought that, oh, that's a divine experience. But really, no, what it is is when there is stress, uh, 
uh, capillaries inside, they burst, and, and blood can start to come out with a sweat, and science tells you that. So the physical suffering was real. You with me on that? Okay, let's look at another one. Uh, the shock. I'll send you these um, pre- presentations so you, know, you can get a little more detail on that. But even the shock, when Pilate uh, flogged or he had uh, Jesus flogged, uh, we know about what, what would happen as a result, right? The cat of nine, nine tails, and each time it would go on the flesh and how it will rip the whole uh, flesh. What happens is the, in the center you have the, the effect on the body. The heart races, the kidney stops uh, uh, producing urine and all of that. And so the body actually goes into a shock. Uh, and there are people who've actually died just from the flogging, right? And the, the, the thirst that the body feels because of the loss of fluid. And that matches up with the scientific explanation, all right? The, this is a good one. The near, uh, nail-pierced hands, all the, uh, you know, the paintings that we've seen have all the nails pierced where? On the palm, all right? And so if the Bible had said, oh, the palm was pierced, then I guess we, we can say, oh, right, okay, there's, there's an issue here. But we know that the palm, the signs would tell us that palms cannot take the weight of the body. It has to be in the, uh, in the wrist because the wrist there, you have the, uh, the nerve which really, you know, can be very painful each time you pull up and, and you know, pull up and down on, 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 while you're on the cross, right? Interestingly, in the gospel narration, it only says that he was crucified, but there's only one place where we can actually get, at least one that I saw, uh, where the word nails is used. Do you know where? I mean, if you look at the screen, it'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, where was the, what's... Right, Thomas actually mentions that. Thomas mentions saying that the nail pierced, unless I see the piercing of his nail on his hands. And for us, probably the hands is this, but in, in the Jewish language, the hand is the entire, even the wrist and everything uh, falls under that. All right? One more. We'll do one more and then we'll pass on, all right? Did you know the word... Um, excruciating is about the word uh, the pain described while you're on the cross excruciating cruise is the cross out of the cross so the pain that that you experience on the cross is supposed to be the highest amount of pain that you could ever ever suffer and uh, it talks about the pain uh, there were many saw and they were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. All right, we have notes on that. There is, uh, there is one other thing out of joint. This I thought was interesting. The prophecy which says that, the, uh, that my bones are out of joint. While on the cross, while your nails are, where your legs are nailed and your hands are nailed, what happens is because you are hanging, your shoulders come off. I mean, this is like Richie, I guess, but both the shoulders coming off. But uh, the truth of the matter is that now it comes off the socket. And so while you're on the cross like this, if you have to, you're, you're, you're being weighed down, your body is pulling down and you're, it's holding up by the, uh, by the hands. And every time you want to breathe, you have to push with your leg, all right, so that you can take a breath. And then let go so that you can breathe in and breathe out. But you're scraping the back of your lacerated, your lacerated back against the, uh, against the cross. But the moment you are nailed and you put into that hole, your body just pulls the bones out of its joints. And, um, and Psalm 22, we know, was written much before 
uh, even crucifixion was even uh, invented uh, and practiced. All right, so we'll we'll go past um, we'll go past uh, some of that just for the lack of time, but. Um, <clears throat> It's important that we recognize there is a difference between a legend and a miracle. A legend and a miracle. What would be your first, like what, how would you know something is legend and something is miracle, miraculous? How would you, like what, what would be your feel? Like how would you know when you listen to it or read it or whatever, something is a legend or something is a miracle, possibilities? Miracle cannot be experienced, all right, okay. Explain, sorry, okay. What else? Why, why do you, when you read some things and you feel like that's a legend? Yeah, Josh. Okay, they are cultural stories, cultural narratives. Yeah, I'll take that. That's how legends are defined. Um, uh, there are some Gnostic Gospels. The Gospel of Thomas is an example uh, versus the, the Gospels that we have. When you read the Gospel of Thomas, I'm not asking you to go read it. I mean, it's just a waste of time. But if you do read it, what are some of the things that stand out? And you say, huh, I can't, I can't really you know, agree with that. What would those things be? What would your red flags be? Anything that you can think of? All right, so um, the Gospel of Thomas, for example, has this uh, uh, explanation of when Christ came out of the grave. And it says there that all the Roman soldiers, all the disciples, they were all watching. Suddenly there was this bright light and Jesus walks through the stone and out. And the, the language that is used is very flowery, very um, um, what's the word? I just forgot the word. But um, it it's superfluous. It adds a lot to it, which is you're trying hard to show that it was grand and divine and great. And, and uh, it's not just a natural narrative. If you were to write a historical passage of the resurrection, and you see that in Mark and Matthew and Luke and John, they seem to be sticking to the narrative. This, they don't add the flowery part to it. They, doesn't, it doesn't, they don't spend too much time trying to uh, fluff, fluff up the incident. They're about the, uh, the narrative and telling you what is happening. But when you read legends, when you read such gospels, the Gospel of Philemon, Gospel of Philip, Gospel of uh, Thomas, and some of these Gnostic gospels, and, and it's been said that these gospels have been, you know, uh, you know, um, who's that guy who Don Dan Brown? He, he was asking this question: Why is it that those gospels are never used? Like what? What caused people, what caused the earlier church leaders not to use those gospels and picked up only these four gospels? The language is one big thing. I mean, there are, there are things that it was, people knew that it was written 150, 200, 250, 300 years later than when the narrative was, uh, when the incident actually happened. Right, so they're, they're, the, the, the language of the legend is something that you have to be very careful about, all right? So the reason I say this is because I'm going to ask you this. So read that, and uh, in your group itself, as you look at this, tell me why or why not.
Any, any reason? Say it again. Can't hear you. Oh, why would it say FBC? All right, okay. It's an obvious clue. If you get a coin which prints 4 BC, you know that BC or AD was, um, you know, as a calendar system, was coined only in the 1500s or whatever, right? So um, the reason I put this, and a very simple reason, but when you find information, in the Bible, if you find information in the Bible such like this, you know, when you start to write uh, your own, you're not spirit-led, and you start to write things, and it cannot be collaborated, it cannot be, it cannot, it does not hold up evidence, then we would have had the right to, uh, to drop the Bible. But again and again and again and again, you will see that Bible holds up. And so as we start to look at the legal historical view, because science is unable to prove to us historical events, we have to start to look at uh, other ways to show the truth of it, all right? Okay, so, so the three ways, therefore, that we would uh, uh, look at a document and prove its histor- histor- historicity is the oral, the written, and the exhibits, all right? Uh, the oral... We, we won't spend too much time on that because uh, we've seen that as part of the internal evidence, the intention and the integrity of the disciples, the ones who wrote it, right, that their intention and the integrity of it. Uh, did you know, uh, for example, I mean, one of the things that we have a concern with right now is the, the iPads and people take, taking a school, the iPads and use of computers, and as parents, we start to think, oh, people are forgetting how to write. They, you know, the handwriting is getting so bad, and they can't seem to be writing. True? I mean, do you feel that? All right. So that's the digital revolution. Many centuries ago, there was the written revolution. When they started to write, they had the same fear, because now when you start to write, you're starting to say, oh, I'm, I'm, people won't remember. They won't, they, you know, they, they won't memorize, because now everything is written down. You see, in the time where Torah completely was learned by heart, did you know to be a rabbi, you would have to learn the whole of Torah by heart, the entire thing. We, we struggle now to learn a memory verse, right? Once a week, one verse, we have a problem. But they would have to do the whole Torah, all right? So there has been this revolution that's moved away from from uh, what used to be the, you know, how they would learn and pass on. One was the oral uh, traditions, as it's called. And, um, you know, we've always, when we think about the oral traditions, we think about the Chinese whispers, right, or whatever you might call it, the telephone telephone game, I guess you call it. You, You give a message, and by the time it reaches the third or the fourth or the fifth or the tenth, the message is all changed. But we forget the way the oral oral traditions were passed on because every third person had to say it aloud and compare it that what that person has understood and learned by heart is the same what the first and the second person have known by heart themselves. So oral traditions were said loud, it was repeated, and it was confirmed, and the intention and the integrity was to hold on, to preserve to the truth. They didn't, they didn't, they wouldn't dare change the message. All right? Okay, so, um, <clears throat> what, what I wanted to look at is this, is this written. All right, so we have the oral, but then you have the written the written documents. How do you know that the Bible that you have in your hand is the Bible that was, that was written? All right? So look at the one, two, three, four, five, six. There are six different types of documents. It spe- speaks about the original dates, the number of copies available, and the, uh, the, uh, the uh, dates uh, of those copies, and then the gap between the two. When you look at that table, what confidence does it give you? What does, it, what does that table tell you? Let me put it that way.
is there anything about the table that says, well, that, that gives me some kind of uh, confidence or not? Say it again. It's a written proof that can be uh, accessed, okay. Say that again. Integrity is preserved. How would you explain that? Okay, so one way of looking at it is the gap. If you see the New Testament, the gap right at the bottom is, uh, you know, the earliest manuscripts that we have, the gap is 5 to 30 years from the original that was written. All right, I'll take one. What else? What, what are the other things? The number of copies. Why is that important? Right. You see, that's very important because now let's say we were talking about it on Wednesday. If we had one document, one document, and you were to say, wow, I've got the original document. I know this is the document that Paul wrote. How would he prove it? You're not able to prove it, right? How would you prove that that was the document that Paul wrote, right? Even if it's the closest to when he wrote, let's say it is within the year or on the year that was written, you have no comparison to prove that that's the truth. You, you with me on this? All right. Now look at this. Now, so this is where the wisdom of God is so beautifully evidenced, all right? So we have almost 5,600 copies, as you can see in the second uh, column um, for the New Testament. 5,600 document, uh, documents or copies of the New Testament or various parts of it, not entirely. These are in different geographical locations. These are, you know, uh, collected from various places. Now, when I start to compare these various documents, if they are, if they are different, if, they are, you know, if, there's, if there's a problem, uh, if they're different, then we have a problem. Because if the first document was written and the second document was, you know, just, I just started to call it Gospel of Matthew, and they started making copies of that, I started making copies of this, so there are thousands of these copies and thousands of these copies, and I start to compare and say, no, they don't match. We have a problem. But if you have 5,600 copies and they match up, except for some scribal errors, we'll, we'll touch on that if you have time, but not to the point where the message or the doctrine is affected, then I think this is, this is something to, you know, to say, wow, this, this goes beyond proof that God is the one who preserved it for us and to say that there has been an integrity of the scribes who copied it. Would you agree? Do, do, do you get this point? Do you understand what I'm saying here? A any thoughts? Anything anybody wants to add? You see, the copies, the multiple copies is a, is a multiple witness. And, and so... Um, that, uh, you know, that, that again is, uh, any scholar will tell you, any scholar, uh, you know, willing to admit that this is, uh, this is beyond doubt uh, that there has been no corruption of the original, okay? So, uh, the written again, they, when you look at the documents, well, we got that thing, we understand, we said, all right, we, we, we say now that there's, not much, there's no difference between what would be the original versus what we have, but we also want to know what is the extent of, that, uh, of, of the accuracy. Not just that we have, you know, we have that, uh, that both have been, the, the, the message has been preserved, but also the extent. And so the scholars go into, into three other things, the biographical, the internal criticism, and the external evidence. Now, I don't, want to, I don't want to go too much into this detail, and I'm not an expert in this to prove to you, but the reason I take you through this, and I'll walk you through very quick, is just so that from the external evidence, we, we saw first the internal evidence. Now we're looking from the external evidence. What are the other things on the outside that show us that, no, there has been no corruption of the Bible? I want us to be confirmed in our hearts uh, 
you know, it's, it, it's not just we sing for our own satisfaction, that we can take, uh, we can take this uh, truth to the bank, okay? So, um, so the uh, biographical one, the copies, the correctness, the consistency, and the closeness. We, you know, th- those come out from the, from the table that I just showed you, right? The number of copies and how each of those copies compare and how correct they are and consistent they are and how close they are to the original writing. And then you have the uh, extent of credibility. One of the things about the Bible is that it's willing to stand the scrutiny of, um, of people. Scholars can look at that, and we, we don't see, oh, this is the divine, Bi- this is the Bible, this is divine, and so you should not ask questions. Where do you know God is asking, where in the Bible do we read where God is calling us to ask questions and, and to reason it out? Do you know a verse? Say it again. Isaiah, yeah. Come, let us reason together. That's a great example. And the fact of the matter is this, that our faith is not a blind faith. It's an assured faith. It is faith that we can test, right? And so uh, scriptural criticism is one of this. And then, and then the other historical documents. And I, again, uh, you know, the other... Uh, uh, authors who mention what, who are some of the authors who who speak about the incidents that happen in the Bible, apart outside of the Bible. Do you know any names? Josephus, yeah, that's right. Pliny the Elder. He speaks about some of the uh, uh, events. Yeah. I I, I don't Tacitus Tacitus. Yeah. Okay. And so what they say compare again to what has been written. So it's, we got outside of the Bible itself, all right? Okay, so I rushed through this. One of the things, and we won't, again, go too much into this detail, one major evidence is the uh, archaeological evidences, right? In archaeology, you can look at it in four different ways. One is the coins, okay, that's the numismatus, okay? Um, and then you have the epigraphical, which are the inscriptions or the seals. Then you have the papyro, uh, papyro, papyrus, I guess. Uh, these are the private letters and uh, structural evidence, roads and harbors. Um, architecture. Now, as they keep digging architecture, what, what, what's the advantage of architectural digs? if we want to compare the authenticity of the scripture. Now, the Bible is already written. You already got the document. No. Go ahead. It gets proved because what is still unknown gets proven again and again and again and again each time there's an architectural, not architectural, archaeological dig. Each time archaeology comes up something, they have compared to com- they try to come back and say, "Hey, listen, they only f- they can only say that it's matched up." If there's been any uh, blanks, it's because there's not there's no evidence. Like for example, Pilate as an example, they couldn't prove about Pilate being a governor for the longest time. And it was only recently, if I remember the date correctly, it was in the 70s that they found a stone, an inscription about, the pilot, about Pilate and about him being the governor. Uh, uh, Daniel is a great example. For the longest time, uh, remember the time where the, the finger is being, the, the judgment is written on the wall, on the wall with a finger, and Belshazzar says, you shall be the third ruler. Remember that? That was, that was contested because they didn't have, there were no three rulers. There was like, you know, how would you be the third ruler? Because Belshazzar was already the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. 
should have been the fourth or, you know, definitely not the third. It was only the archaeological dig later that showed that while Belshazzar was the ruler, his father, I forget his name, was also ruling. He was the second ruler, and what he was offering is that we'll be three of us ruling in Babylon because of this. And, and that's from archaeology. If archaeology had come up with evidence against the Bible, then you have, then it would have had a case. All right? Um, Exhibits, these are some of the other things. Now, all of these lands, just if you take one Egypt as an example, all of those have been proven to be true. And Dead Sea Scrolls, what do you know about Dead Sea Scrolls? What do we know about Dead Sea Scrolls? They were found, there was just a shepherd who, you know, was throwing stones into, into the caves and he started to hear pot, you know, uh, the breaking of pottery and, and later they go and dig up and they say these are scrolls from 4 BC um, and there were documents of Isaiah completely, uh, almost the entire document, uh, the, the scroll of Isaiah and there were such other documents. Now when you take what was found from that far off, and then compared to what you have, if there are errors or they're too different, we would have had a problem. Now, Dead Sea Scrolls prove to us again that there's been no corruption of the word. So if anybody just glibly says to you that there's been a corruption, they just need to look honestly um, and not because they've been told that, okay? So, um, well, I think the... Uh, what I wanted to do is with these external things, go a little quickly. I know it can get a little technical, but um, but it's good to just sit and hear that, knowing that our faith is true. But one question that I really wanted to ask is uh, what C.S. Lewis asks. Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he the Lord? All right? And that's important because Jesus claimed to be God. If his claim was true, then you can either accept or you reject he is Lord and we are lost. If his claim was false, he knew his claim was false, and he made a deliberate misrepresentation, then he was a liar, a demon, a hypocrite, and a fool. He didn't know his claim was false, then he was sincerely deluded, he was lunatic. That's the three options that we have for a person who is willing to die and called his disciples to die with him. Is he a lord? Is he a liar? Or he is a lunatic? If he is a liar, then he would also be a hypocrite because he taught others to be honest, whatever the cost. If he was lying, he was a, he was a demon for he told others to trust him for their eternal destiny. If he was lying, he was a fool for he for his claims to deity led him to be crucified, a claim he could have backed away even at the last moment. Could it be that he was a lunatic? The skill and the depth of his teaching only support the case uh, for his total mental sanity. He cared for the women, the children, who weren't important enough in the society of the times. Let me give you another quote from uh, C.S. Lewis. And I was just... Uh, and I think very beautifully he, uh, he, he says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. What he goes on to say later is, listen, the world is willing to call Jesus a great teacher, a moral teacher. He was a good man. He was all of that. And C.S. Lewis, as he writes this article, he's saying, no, you can't call him just Lord. He, uh, sorry, you can't just call him good. You could just can't call him a moral teacher because he actually taught, and if he taught intentionally, uh, if he taught, he was lying. If he taught being deluded, then he was a lunatic. And what God does, what the Lord doesn't give us, let me read to you. And he says, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. 
But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so as you, um, as we think about uh, the options that we have, we only come to the conclusion that he is Lord and that we have to um, worship him, uh, glorify him, and be thankful for what he has done for us and that we have a hope which is sure. Right? However, with they would want there are you know you know we know stories of the one who who went to disprove christianity lived in jerusalem and he came up with a story of ben hur right because he he was confronted with the reality of who jesus christ is lay strobel and then you have um, the evidence that uh, demands verdict josh mcdowell some of these great minds, see, you know, some of these great minds who went about to disprove Jesus Christ, but were confronted and were humble enough to recognize that if He is the Lord, then they must submit. And I think that that's a good reminder for us. You know, we 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 know we've known we've you know we we. We are thankful that we, we know him and, and uh, we are his children. But uh, the greatest joy that we have is if you hold up Christianity under any light, an honest light, it holds up credibly against any scrutiny. All right, so praise God for that. Any thoughts, any questions you want to add or...